G'day, and welcome to the 2019 Fremantle Press podcast series. My name is Holden Shepherd, and I am the current winner of the City of Fremantle TAG Hungerford Award. My first novel, Invisible Boys, will be out later this year, but for the next few months I'll also be your podcast host. Today I am absolutely stoked to be chatting with the incredible poet and lovely human, Nandi Chinna. Nandi works as a research consultant and community arts facilitator. Her poetry publications include Swamp, Walking the Wetlands of the Swan Coastal Plain, Alluvium, How to Measure Land, and Our Only Guide is Our Homesickness. She is also represented in many journals and anthologies, including the Fremantle Press Anthology of Western Australian Poetry and the Australian Poetry Anthology. In 2016, Nandi was writer-in-residence at Kings Park and Botanical Gardens in Perth. She won the 2016 Fremantle History Award for her History of Clontarf Hill and was shortlisted for the 2016 Red Room Poetry Fellowship. She has had several residencies at Varuna, the National Writers' House, in Katoomba, New South Wales. Nandi, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's dive in and talk about The Future Keepers, which is your third book of poetry. Um, It is a beautifully written collection, and it's filled with pieces often inspired by nature, Mm. often critical of humans or human impositions on nature. And most powerfully, I think that comes through in the poem, Quiet, uh, towards the end. I wondered, have you always had this fascination with the natural world, and what is it about eco-criticism or eco-poetry that that really tugs at you and inspires you? Mm. Yeah, well, I guess I've always, you know, I was taken out into the bush from a very young age as probably a baby. Yeah, so my father was a bushy bush guy and he was an environmentalist before that was kind of even a word that was talked about much. Yeah, and I don't know where he got it from because his his family was sort of very anglicised. They called England home, even though they Mm. were Australians. But yeah, he loved Australian plants and country and so... We were taken out camping, you know, from the time we can remember, my brother and sister and I. And camping was a pretty rough affair with Dad. Mm-hmm. So yeah. <laughs> um, we often slept outside. We walked a lot. We caught rabbits and cooked on a fire and, and it was fantastic. So I've always felt really comfortable in the bush, a lot more comfortable in the bush than anywhere else, really. And I guess, you know, over my lifetime... Nature has become a precarious situation and, mm. you know, as Mary Oliver, who recently died last week actually, yes. the American poet, I was listening to an interview with her and she, she said, you know, loving nature is full of sorrow now and that's, that's how I feel. And when I see it all happening, um, species becoming extinct and um, water polluted and, and all that sort of stuff. So I, in my creative life and in my work life, I try to speak out about it and do what I can um, because it is my most burning issue Mm. because it's my greatest love. Yeah, and um, what you just said about, you know, loving nature, and it is such something filled with sorrow. When you said that, I thought about the way you write about nature in in these poems, in this collection, and in particular, there were a few references kind of thematically that came through about seed pods and and, and this kind of sadness around, you know, there's these beautiful natural things that should grow into something and there's there's almost this sadness of, well, what's it going to grow into? Exactly. I mean, that's the whole idea of the future keepers. It's like, that is a question, Mm. you know. And, you know, increasingly myself and, and many people I know and people I read are filled with a, a real grief. Mm. Glenn Albrecht from Murdoch, you know, he coined the term solastalgia to um, name this kind of homesickness when you haven't left home, but home leaves you. 
Mm, wow. And, yeah, so that's what I, I write about because I feel so strongly about it. And, you know, when you do love, it, it's like love. And when you lose something you love, you feel grief. Yeah. There's definitely that undertone of grief or anticipatory grief um, throughout some of the poems in this collection. I wanted to ask you about your residency at Varuna. You wanted to talk about, um, yeah. You've undertaken several of those, mm. most recently uh, in early 2018. Met you. Where, 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 I was going to say where we met. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we had a great time. It was really, it was really fun chatting and, and mm. it was very funny because we were you know, WA authors and we met in New South Wales. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I, I wanted to ask, I remember when you were there, you were, you were taking a lot of bush walks and you were really getting into nature and even just laying out amongst nature and being amongst it while I was kind of being a hermit in my room. <laughs> um, but I, I, I have since read on your website that you practice something called poopatetics. Is that oh, how you... Poopatetics. Poopatetics. Yeah. Can you explain, like, is that what you were doing when you were doing those bush walks? Yeah, that's what I'm always doing. Yeah. Right. And how does that, what is it? Tell me about it. Well, I've, it's a neologism that I made up myself. Because sometimes you need a word that mm. for something that doesn't exist, but it's not a new concept. You know, people have been walking to stimulate creativity for millennia. Mm, okay. You know, Aboriginal Australia, for example, you know, Australia was mapped by people on foot and there are all the songs that describe that. So, yeah, it's, um, it's just a, a putting two words together, poetics mm-hmm. and peripatetic, which means walking or travelling about. Oh, right. So it basically means making poetry from walking. Yeah, and, and I find walking, yeah, a lot of people do find walking very stimulating for creativity. Mm. And, I mean, there's a lot of levels of it. It's, on the one hand, it's the best way to experience a place because you can smell, taste, touch, mm, mm. you know. You're in amongst you're it. You're in amongst it. Yeah. And on the other hand, there's something about the rhythm of walking, which is sort of like... Um, well, Rebecca Solnit calls it, it's closer to the rhythm of our heart and our breathing. Most people, a lot of people experience it where you're, you just go for a walk and in about 10 or 15 minutes, you find your anxiety drops away, your worries, your planning for the future, and you're just there and you're dreaming and thinking and, and for the creative person, you know, creative ideas arise. So it's kind of a win-win because <laughs> you, you're not only getting all these amazing sensory inputs, but it's churning around in there and it's, it's giving you the stimulation for creativity. And when that stimulation happens, like when you're, when you're doing that walk and you're, you know, you're 5Ks away from Varuna or wherever, do you kind of go... I'm just going to repeat it in my head until I get back. Or do yes. you drop? You know, is that what you, <laughs> That's exactly what I do. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't think I'd. I, I don't think I'd cope. I'd be like, I have to write it down right now, or I'm going to forget it, and I probably would forget it. Yeah. So do you just keep going? And, well, I mean, and you just take it. a notebook. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and some people take their phone or whatever, and they record. Mm. But yeah, if it's a long walk, I always take a notebook. Um, if it's a shorter walk, then I can usually remember it until I get home. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd love to ask you about the structure of this particular collection. Mm. So um, the poems in this book are, are clustered into six sections. What's the significance of those sections? Um, was it based on where you wrote the poems or, uh, and observed those things or were there other factors to take into consideration? The six sections kind of evolved during the editing process with Wendy Jenkins yep. at Fremantle Press. Because I think with my last book, that was all about the wetlands of the Swan Coastal Plain. Um, but this collection is a bit more diverse. Mm. So there's poems about the Belial wetlands. There's poems about the Kings, uh, Kings Park, the, you know, the residency I did there. There's poems about exploring England and walking in England. And there's also, I guess, a lot of things that happen in your life that you need a process and mm. you know aging losing a parent 
yeah, just lots of little events that happen, which if, you know, if something happens to me or I, or I witness something that really affects me, um, it usually comes out in a poem later on. Right. So is, is poetry a way of processing that trauma? Oh, totally. Yeah, because what do you do with something that is so strong? You know, a strong event, like losing a parent, you know, you just, you've got emotion banging around in you. I guess everybody finds the, the way to deal with things that happen to them, you know, whether it's running or <laughs> swimming or whatever. Mm. For me, I guess it's walking and writing. And not only that, I mean, what connects us as humans, you know, is our experiences. And, you know, as a writer, I'm sure you know this yourself, you know, like your new book, it's all about the experience you had growing up gay in the, in the country. Mm. If we share these stories, you know, it helps us as humans to connect mm. And, mm. and it helps, helps us all to make meaning and understand the stuff we go through. Yes. So And be I understood mean, as well. Exactly. Right? That, yeah. I mean, if, you know, if I was just writing it down for myself, I'd just keep it in a journal. I also put it out there in the hope that it will add to the conversation that we have as humans about mortality and mm. biodiversity and all, all sorts of things, yeah. And there's one, I mean, there's one conversation in particular that this collection speaks directly to, and I'd love to kind of tease it out a bit, um, and that's about the Belia wetlands. Yeah. Um, because you, I remember us talking about this at Varuna, I think you were saying, like, this was actually a real fight, like, mm. not, not just as a poet and as someone who's writing essays, but actually physically, yeah. as an activist, you were right there. So I, I just wondered, if, why is it so important for us to care about these wetlands, and how did your approach to the, that particular issue differ as a poet mm. and as an activist actually there on the front lines? Well, where do I start with the wetlands? <laughs> so a lot of people probably don't realise that before colonisation, Perth was a very wet place. And for the Noongar people, it was an incredible rich, you know, they were rich people. Mm. in terms mm. of resources. There was a lot of fresh water streams and creeks and freshwater wetlands which formed the basis of their spirituality or a big part of their creation stories. But they're also incredibly important resources for survival. There were mm. seasonal camps. And since colonisation, over 80% of them have been destroyed by development. Mm. And that continues today. I mean, that, that was... 80% was estimated in the late 80s. I'm sure it's a lot more now. There hasn't wow. been a, another serious study done. But So there's that aspect. We now get almost 50% of our drinking water from the Indian Ocean in right. a very expensive desalination process, mm, mm. energy intensive. And the other issue is that most of our endemic species, our flowers, our birds, our mammals, rely on the wetlands mm. for their survival that you totally rely on the wetlands. Yeah. If, they weren't, if the wetlands weren't there, they wouldn't be there. So if you add up those equations, it used to be fresh drinking water available. Yeah. Now we, we import it from the ocean at an incredibly expensive cost. We also, we're losing our biodiversity. Mm. So it's a no-brainer, you know. If we, if we don't look after our remaining wetlands, we're going to lose the rest of our natural environment. Mm. Our, our freshwater springs and streams are all polluted and have been renamed as drains. So, you know, I, when I started looking into this, I became quite passionate about mm. saving the wetlands, which I've written about um, in my poetry. But to be honest, the physical activist side um, I found really hard. Mm. And it's depicted in some of these poems as yeah. well. Like, I mean, pretty graphically have said what happened. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I went through this whole process with the wetlands from 2008 when I got involved of putting in submissions to the EPA, you know, going through the court cases, all, you know, huge amount of work, not just poetic work, but huge submissions, Mm. meetings, all this stuff. And the advice of the hydrology experts, the the fauna flora experts was all completely ignored by the government. Mm. So what else could be done? You know, when you've gone through all that process, the process that is there supposedly to protect the environment, the legislation, Mm. you go through that process with good faith and goodwill. When the top experts are ignored and the fences go up and the bulldozers come in, you don't have a choice. But it wasn't a pleasant thing to be involved in. It was very emotionally, psychologically, physically draining Mm. um, and dangerous. Uh, I mean, you were physically in front of bulldozers. (laughs) Yeah, and we were... Yeah, we were doing all sorts of dangerous stuff, but we felt with our bodies, with our hearts, with our minds that we had to stop this, mm. and we did. So that, 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 I was going to say, that, that's the best part of this, that, that's actually row eight is no more, is that right? Oh, uh, well, almost. Or that version yeah. of it is no more. Still being removed from the main road scheme, but that has to go through Parliament. Right. But, yeah, we stopped it at the time. And there was an incredible amount... There were an incredible amount of poets involved in the mm. in the campaign. So Jennifer and Horst Kornberger, a couple of poets, they they organised a, a huge silent vigil in Perth where a couple of thousand people rocked up and stood wow. in silence in the city. John Kinsella and James Quinton and Wendy Jenkins, they all wrote poetry and filmed it and tweeted it. And poets were doing stuff all over the place, holding readings, walks protection Mm. events so i think that's this very special important environment of the wetlands really moves people in the heart yeah and so a lot of poets responded yeah it it was um i remember you kind of telling me about it It it's just really impressive to see a community of poets doing something so active and so protective yeah i mean because usually we're just hiding away (laughs) in our rooms writing our poems (laughs) I know I am. I don't write poetry, but I just sit there writing my little book. Yeah. You know? but, but this is a really you know, active thing to do. That's what I mean. I mean, it w- that's what I mean. It wasn't easy for a lot of us to get out there and do that. And mm. being on the wrong side of the law is not a comfortable place to be. Mm. Even if you feel that you're, what you're doing is right and you believe in what you're doing and you believe that the law's not doing its job to protect this environment, yeah, it's very stressful and it took a toll on on us for sure but yeah it was also an incredibly you know the community that came around and and was built during that time is is really unique and well probably not unique I mean it happens in other places but it was very special and it's still Mm. that's that community still exists and it's good to know that it'll be there to step up if they try anything like that again Yes, yeah, in the future, right? It yeah. just prevents that from happening. That kind of, I mean, I feel like that answer and, and what we talked about earlier kind of maybe answers my next question mm. a little bit. But I wanted to ask about the title of the collection, yeah. The Future Keepers, mm. which is drawn uh, from one of the poems, actually the title poem. Yeah. What drew you to title the whole collection after that poem? Yeah, well, it is, you know, totally related to what we've just been talking about. The question of the future, you know, for our kids, grandkids, for our water, our soil and our air and all the other amazing non-humans that we live with, that is so uncertain at the moment. So the question of the future 
I think is on a lot of people's minds. Mm. And, you know, when I was in residency at Kings Park and I, I went through the, the science um, biodiversity centre and um, I was really moved, really, really moved by what the scientists are doing there because that what the work they're doing preserving the tissue cultures and the seeds and they're keeping them in cryo storage which mm. can potentially last for hundreds of years for a future that none of us know what it will be but there's so much hope in that mm. you know there's just so much beautiful hope in that project and you know it may not seem like it but i, I do have hope too <laughs> amongst the despair and and there are so many people who are doing amazing things mm to help create a better future. And there is so much hope in that. I mean, you're not just living for now, for what you can get out of it, which is the thing that is destroying the planet. Mm, you know, mm. if people who are just trying to trying to um, accumulate as much as they can in, in their life or, I don't know, just eat it all up, obviously not thinking about the future. The future keepers, they're the people who are. You know, they are the hopeful beings who don't know what is going to happen, but they, that's my vision that one day, God knows when, or who, you know, when we're all gone, that tissue culture will be there. And who knows what state this planet is going to be in, but that will be there to grow. And so, yeah, that's why I called it the future keepers, because even though there's a, there is a lot of sorrow and despair in it, if you think about geological time, you know, yeah. like yeah. the Anthropocene is, is an epoch, there will be others. And, You've got to have some hope that the earth will survive. Yeah, and I think that sentiment that you that that poem expresses and the title is just a beautiful one that it kind of hangs like a nice little umbrella over over most of the collection. Although it's I mean this this collection is heavily focused on nature and, and the ecology, but not all of them are. I mean there are there are several poems that deal with humans really specifically and I noticed a theme of aging and mortality mm. running through those poems kindling was the one that um, jumped out um, <laughs> the green jumper was more about mortality but even even poems like ladies or nanas which was really about the Belia wetlands um, mm. protesty stuff but it kind of still had that undercurrent of being an older person yeah. what does the world need to know about the aging process about mortality what what is it that you want to say <laughs> I don't know if, if I can tell the world anything but <laughs> Um, I give you permission. <laughs> I mean, writers and artists, like you deal with what you got. A lot of the time you deal with what's going on, as we talked about earlier, mm. process things. And, you know, I lost my father some years ago. He died of cancer. You know, I'm ageing. I'm becoming an elder. I'm moving up in the chain. As I, as I lose my parents, then I become mm. the elder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I you know, I write about that because that's what's going on for me. And, um, yeah, I write about a lot of other incidences that happen. You know, ageing is, I don't know what it's like for men, but for women, you know, you sort of become invisible at a certain, right. in society, you sort of become invisible at a certain point when you're no longer an object of desire, I suppose, to the external world. But, you know, once you sort of get your head around that, which can be a bit shocking when it first starts happening to you, but mm. there's such a liberation and a freedom in it as well. Apart from the body things of, you know, wearing out, getting older, I, I really love ageing. There's a, there's a wisdom in it and mm. there's a settling. There's a, you know, learning to accept yourself. And there's also, you know, a lot of wonderful things that happen. You get to, you know, I, I've been really lucky that I've had incredible mentors in my life, like my friend Deb Westbury, who passed away last year, Morgan Yasbinchek, and just many other writers who have helped me along. And now I'm in that role, I'm starting to mentor other people and 
that's another beautiful thing about mm. getting older is that you've learned a bit of stuff, you know. <laughs> you've worked at your craft. So you're in the position to share. And um, I think that's a really important part of being an artist or a writer is is actually passing on the, the baton to, to um, enable others who are coming on the journey. Yeah, it's pretty good. It sounds, I, I feel a little bit better about turning 30 now. <laughs> <laughs> Wait <laughs> till you, you say that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like, like just the way you're saying it, it's like, you know what, aging sounds okay now. I'm kind of at peace with it. I mean, <laughs> it sounds nice. Writing's one of the the most wonderful professions for aging because you never stop. Uh-huh. I mean, look at yeah. Doris Lessing. I mean, mm. you start creating your greatest work as you get older because you're honing your craft. You never mm. stop learning. You know, David Maloof, oh, what yeah. a guy. You know, he's just brought out a new collection at 83. Yeah. So you've got that inspiration ahead of you. It's not like, oh, it's all over. <laughs> you know, when I, by the it, time I reach 60, it's like, wow, I've got, if I live... Um, if I have the privilege to keep living, I can still keep creating. So yeah, it's pretty good. Oh, it does sound good. Thank you mm. for thank you for alleviating my stresses. <laughs> I wanted to ask about one poem in particular that yeah. um, stood out to me, and it probably stood out because it was you know probably thematically so different from a lot of the other poems. Mm. Um, and that's the boy on the Mandra Road, yeah. which was particularly powerful and a little bit haunting. Where did that come from? Was that a real incident that yes, happened? Yes, it was. So Oof. I mean. It pretty much says it in the poem. I was driving home from my father's funeral. I was driving my father's car. I had my father's dog in the back who I'd taken on responsibility for. And this kid, probably about 13 years old, skinny little fellow, no shirt, just this little, like a little bird, skinny little chest. Yeah, he tried to run under my car. And there was a lot of traffic and he was just trying to choose any car that he could. He, he came out of the medium strip and in front of my car onto my windscreen. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I stopped and tried to get him off the road and another couple of guys stopped and helped. But he was, you know, I think sometimes when people are really hysterical, they're really strong. Mm-hmm. You know, they get this kind of incredible strength. And it, these two huge guys, like, and myself, you know, we could barely hold him down. And, yeah, we just held him. We, we, we held him on the side of the road and called the police. And they were they took ages to come. And he was saying that he... And, and these guys were saying, geez, mate, you've taken too much of whatever. Yeah. But he was saying, no, I haven't taken anything. Um, I've, I've got no home. My mum has got a new boyfriend and he doesn't want me around and I've got no home. So, yeah, it was really, really shocking, as you say, a shocking experience. And I think, as we were saying earlier, you know, whenever I have a shocking experience, it kind of Mm, mm. shakes. Yeah, it it really shakes you up. And and so what do you do? Like you create something, you know, I wanted Mm. to tell that story for myself and, and for others, I guess, because there are a lot of children who are really struggling at the moment. You know, there's a, such a suicide epidemic amongst our young people. And, um, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm getting exactly the yeah. same way. And I was... I mean, yeah. we've got to do something to help them. And, um, yeah, just children who aren't loved by their families. It's just so, so tragic. Yeah. And, they, you know, they do... They do struggle and they, you know, they don't want to live. And that's what I was trying to say to this boy at the time, having gone through nothing like that, but having gone through a bit of shit in my life. It's like when you're young, you can't see that this will end. You can't mm. see that there could be something different. Yeah. 
And you only get that through living through a few things and realising that you do wake up, you do live on. And I was trying to say that to him. I was trying to say, look, you don't know what is gonna, the future's going to be and yeah. it could be great, it could be amazing. You've got so much life to live. And I was just trying to say these things to him as I was holding mm-hmm. him, you know, because how do, we, how do we give that to our young people? I know what it's like to feel despair and to think that this is all there is. Mm. But, yeah, you do live through that. You do live through things and, you know, the human spirit is pretty incredible that you wake up and the sun keeps coming up and, you know, you keep getting out of bed and you just keep living and you keep finding love. Mm. And love is there. You know, you will be loved. So, yeah, I was just trying to say all this to this guy and that's why I wrote the poem, you know, because I was so affected by it. Mm. I was affected by reading it. You know, like, yeah. like if I can't imagine what it would be like to have been there with him in that moment. Yeah, it was pretty horrific, you know, especially just having coming from my dad's funeral. Yeah. I was like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that I, that's the role of the poet, isn't it, and the artist, you know, mm. to try and, like we were saying before, connect yeah. these stories, to bring them out, to not hide them like the media does. The media hides suicide, mm-hmm. and people just go on thinking that everything's okay, but it's not. No. I, I think, I'm just thinking about it now, the fact that, it was your car and you're a poet who could actually tell his story and let that be seen. I think that was kind of, it's a very powerful thing to mm. have done. And, and it, it certainly, one, makes for a beautiful poem, but two, I think it's a beautiful act that you did. Well, um, you know, the two other guys are probably sitting around yarning, telling their part in it too, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just whatever way you share it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a, it's a really powerful one, so um, definitely a highlight from this collection. Mm. I wanted to ask you about writing. Because you're a writer, and uh, and <laughs> uh, just been talking. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's something in particular. I, um, you've been running a long time. Your work has received a lot of acclaim. You have a lot of wisdom, and you're talking about being able now to mentor younger people. So I'm a younger person, and I would like some <laughs> advice. <laughs> no, I mean, with you know, what wisdom would you share? I mean, looking at someone who's just starting out and who's brand new, like myself, or like other people who are aspiring writers or emerging writers. What do we need to know? Either the creative process or about the career side of things Mm. well it's very kind of you to say I've got a lot of acclaim I don't know about that (laughs) I think those awards speak (laughs) those publications and things speak for themselves it's um (laughs) yeah I mean I think you're a good example Holden of being true being authentic that's that's the most important thing right you know I mean your new book it's about being gay in rural Australia it's got a lot of confronting stuff in it but you know it's won an award it's 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 getting out there because people want to hear authentic stories Mm. They don't want to hear the same old stuff repeated over and over. So, you know, that's that's the one of the main things is is to be true, and don't be afraid of that. Mm. So, authenticity is the most authenticity important for sure. And you know, writing is a craft. It takes it takes time to learn, and that's another mistake people make is sort of like, oh, I've written this. It's so good. Oh, isn't it great? Mm-hmm. But it's hard work. Mm. It takes years. It's Mary Oliver also, you know, she talks about this weird thing in, in writing workshops where people come along and they write something and, and everybody goes, wow, that's so amazing. If you were learning a Bach concerto on the violin and you came along for the first time and, and tried to play it, your teacher would say, well, you do some scales and you mm. learn the notes mm. and you'll learn Bar Bar Black Sheep, you know, <laughs> and then in a few years you'll be playing. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Chopin or whatever. Writing's the same, you know. It's a craft you need to learn. 
and it, it's a lot of hard work and I think that's something that sometimes you don't realise. I mean, I didn't realise it myself, you know, when I started out that, whew, you know, it's a lot of time tucked away in a room by yourself, mm. working away at it. Practising your scales, Practising your scales. Mm. Writing every day, doing your pages, doing your, your practice and reading, you know, doing heaps of reading. Like I just read David Maloof's collected short stories mm-hmm. and to me... Like that's like a five-year university course in one book. It, it, <laughs> yeah. It's so incredible how, br- you know, it's such a brilliant writer, such brilliant stories. I just learn from every page. Yes, yeah, so, I, you know, like I said, you're always still learning. So I just keep reading and trying out stuff and trying to practice my craft, yeah. Practice makes better. I won't say perfect because I don't like I don't like perfection. Perfect I don't think doesn't exist. No, no. But practice makes better. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. The last question I wanted to ask was around. I guess it's probably a selfish question to be honest, but it, it speaks to something that we were chatting about at Varuna. So as you mentioned, my novel Invisible Boys is coming out later this year, and it centres on gay characters. And I wondered if you could share some insight into your experience as as a writer who do you identify as gay or lesbian or yeah yeah. So how the culture around this has changed over the years, and and kind of what should this next generation of of young gay or lesbian writers where should we be going you know what's important do you think <laughs> big questions i know but you know like it's just it feels like we could have like an hour-long conversation yeah. just about that well i think i mean the issues for young people are different these days but like to be honest being gay has never been an issue in my, much of an issue for me in my life and I've, i haven't really written much about it i've i had very liberal parents they accepted me straight away they love me i've always just you know i've had male lovers i've had female lovers i've just followed my heart <laughs> and you know my current partner i've been in a long-term relationship now for 15 years so wow. i suppose um that's a lesbian relationship <laughs> if you want to call it something mm. but yeah i know for other people you know there are many issues involved and some people are rejected by their families by society by their workplaces and so that's tr- that's a trauma and mm. in the past I think you know in the 70s and 80s there was a lot of activism and there's a lot of people writing about oppression and freedom and and all that stuff but I've never really felt that burning need in my own life mm-hmm. um, I have written a few pieces about maybe being bullied a bit at school you know, when I was younger and, and about longing and desire. But that could be gay or straight. Everybody feels yeah. longing and desire Mm-mm. and heartache. <laughs> just from an... I mean, I'm not so involved in the queer community as I used to be. Mm. But just from an observation, it, it seems to be getting quite conservative. Mm. And, you know, like when I was a, a young dyke, like you never dream of getting married. Yeah, yeah. That was the patriarchy. Destroy the patriarchy, you know, like that... <laughs> It was something we would never do because we were different and we were radical. Yeah, there was a more rebellious element to, yeah. hey, look, we're different from the norm here. This is our us. We're visible. We're out there. We're here. We're queer. Get used to it. You know, <laughs> yeah, it was. And that was all part, you know, it was all a necessary part of gaining acceptance and visibility and all that stuff um, because we, in the recent past, legally and socially, we have copped a lot of mm. shit and a lot of difficulty, like partners losing, long-term partners having no rights over their partner and yeah, yeah. women losing their children, you know, so many things. I mean, the first Mardi Gras, people being beaten, really, really beaten up and put in jail. So there was a lot of radical activism around that. But now that we're allowed to get married and... <laughs> we're allowed, isn't it great? We're very <laughs> we allowed. We're given got... permission, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
we're, we're, yeah, that's no, horrible, isn't it? Yeah, I do see a lot of conservatism, you know, like the thing about wanting to get married and settle down in the suburbs, that, that was mm-hmm. never on our agendas. We were, you know, we were always in the days of collectives and meetings and, <laughs> and all that kind yes, of stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, so... For young people these days, the issues are really different. I think the trans community is is dealing with a lot at the moment. Uh, mm. There's a lot of young queer artists who are dealing with some of those issues. Um, you're a young queer guy. You you probably know more about it than me. I'm just, I'm just making up as I go along. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking for tips. <laughs> I mean, your book. Yeah, I mean, I think just being out there and telling our stories is is really important. I feel like just showing up is the thing, like as an artist, you show up show and, up. and yeah. that's, that's what you do. I mean, I went to a gay and lesbian singer's 25th anniversary thing recently and they had some storytelling as part of it. And wow, those stories were so moving. Mm. And I thought that this is telling stories of our community. That's the powerful thing. Yeah. You know, the things that people have gone through, good and bad. It just helps everybody to understand more about us and that we are just humans like everybody else and we love, we ache, we have, you know, all the same stuff. It's just that we do it with our same-sex partners. Yeah, it's, it's like an empathy-building, humanising yeah. kind of thing, telling stories or sharing poems for that matter. So yeah. I could talk about this with you all day, I think, um, but I, I would love to hear a reading from the Future Keepers if mm. that's something you're happy to share. Sure. Wonderful. Which poem would you like to read from? Well, I brought the few that couple that you've referred to. So oh, I'll, awesome. I'll read The Future Keepers. Wonderful. Over to you. The Future Keepers. After staring through the window of the emergency ward, where tissue of extinct and endangered plants glows on shelves under fluorescent lights, and examining the 10,000 vials suspended in liquid nitrogen, those minute memoirs of species frozen in cryo-storage. I walk home through the park and try to get lost along the terraces, find myself wandering through the hakia and grevillea garden, where weebills and singing honey-eaters hang full-bellied from spiky blooms. I think of the courage of the scientist, keeping the future for a thousand years, when a human may or may not release those tiny merry stems and plant them into whatever the world has become. Wow, that last line is what gets me. It's just really powerful. So that was The Future Keepers, the title poem. Yeah. And uh, what was the next one? So The Boy on the Manja Road. <sighs> Fantastic. hope we can read it without all crying after that. I know. After, <laughs> we're going to break down halfway through. Yes. Over to you. The Boy on the Manja Road. I'm driving home from my father's funeral with his black and white farm dog pacing in the back of the ute when a boy, like a bird blown off course, launches himself, arms flung wide onto the dust-flecked glass of my windscreen. Two men and I leap from our cars and drag him from the line of commuters northbound on the Mandra Road. He twists in our arms mouth wide open in an emulsion of despair. His skinny ribs heave beneath my hands and I think of birds I have held, tried to rescue from roadsides, only to have them harden in my palms in the tiny increments of time between breath and stillness. The boy's crying rattles the sharp blades of his shoulders 
inside his translucent skin. The kind of weeping that makes all else recede. There is no road, no families travelling home, just two men with strong arms and tribal tattoos, holding a boy face down with their knees. Me on my mobile phone, begging the police to hurry, while the afternoon traffic thickens on the Mandurah Road. The sun is blurring the horizon by the time I finally pull out into the stream of cars heading north, my father's dog frantically barking and leaping against his chain. That was the, the Boy on the Mandurah Road by Nandi Chinna. Thank you so much for sharing those poems today. And thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Holden. It's been good to chat. It has been really great. Let's do this again sometime. Let's <laughs> schedule it up, shall we? Um, no, really, thank you so much, and, and best of luck with the launch of the book. Thanks, and with yours also. Wow, what a fantastic interview. That was Nandi Chinna, author of The Future Keepers, which was out with Fremantle Press. Join me next time on the Fremantle Press podcast series. Until then, cheers. <laughs>